Welcome, and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Matthews Podcast, a podcast highlighting commercial real estate news, topics, and trends from top professionals in the industry. Today, we're going to be dissecting the net lease retail sector and the shifts occurring in the space with our net lease experts, Simon Asaf, Courtney Hawback, and Gavin Singh. Simon specializes in the disposition and acquisition of single-tenant net lease properties across the United States, serving as an associate vice president within the net lease retail vertical. Courtney advises clients on investments working nationally within the drugstore space, primarily focusing on tenants such as CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid. Uh, Gavin focuses his attention on the QSR space and convenience stores with gas, utilizing his real estate investment knowledge to create premier value for his clients. So Simon, Courtney, Gavin, welcome to the podcast, and let's jump right in. First topic here, as experts in the net lease space, let's kind of explore the shifts that have been occurring in net lease over the last couple of years. Simon, we're going to start with you. There's been a lot of changes over the last couple of years from pre-COVID to COVID to post-COVID. What have you seen kind of the main differences in each of those eras and how has the landscape been shifting over the last 18 months? Yeah, so thank you, Matt. There's definitely been some changes. I think everybody can agree since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been a lot of uncertainty in the market. And typically with uncertainty, there becomes a flight to safety with a lot of these investors. So there's definitely been a flight to safety and, and net lease retail with you know strong operators, long-term leases is one of the safest assets, in, in my opinion, if it's a tenant that has a positive outlook. So you know, we've seen a lot of investors start to invest in investment grade credit, larger operators focusing on stronger markets within the actual industries, let's say, and in, in different aspects of, of single tenant retail. You know, there's been a lot of shifts, especially in the restaurant space. A lot of these restaurants are looking to install drive throughs a lot of retailers offering pickup locations in the front. I and mean, there's definitely been a lot of concern about smaller franchisees and some of the struggling concepts that were already struggling pre-pandemic. I think it's expedited a lot of their struggles here moving forward. So in this light to safety that you mentioned, how does net lease look versus other sectors? And then also that flight to safety concept within net lease. Are they two different things? Like expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So Flight to safety within net lease, you find stronger operators, right? Would you rather have in multifamily, for example, would you rather have somebody working at McDonald's paying your rent or McDonald's itself, right? It's a much stronger, more secure income stream when it's paid by a large company in the net lease space. And then within the net lease space, there are obviously tenants that are doing a lot better than others, tenants that are a lot stronger than others. For example, if you were to buy a smaller 20-unit operator in the Burger King space, let's say, who would you rather have backing that lease, a 20-year Burger King operator or Burger King corporate? So when I say a flight to safety, I'm, I'm mostly talking about who's actually paying that rent and who's guaranteeing that lease. Is it a smaller franchisee that may be struggling because of the pandemic, or is it a large company that's got investment grade credit with 5,000 locations? 
So what's really moving the needle for buyers in the space? Have their preferences changed? How have you seen the biggest buyers to the smallest buyers? What's attracting them to NetLease and, and what are they really looking for in the space? Yeah, they're, they're looking for mostly uh, stability. Again, it's strength of operator. That's always been attractive, but nowadays I would say it's even more attractive. There was a tagline that you would find on most brokers' OMs around the time of the pandemic, and it's kind of since gone away, but a lot of people were looking for locations that stayed open during the pandemic, right? So casual dining took a huge hit because for months on end, depending on which state you were in, you weren't able to go in-room dining, but locations like drugstores, dollar stores, anything that was essential business stayed open during the pandemic. And you saw a lot of cap rate compression on a lot of those retailers. Now, as we've shifted out of the restrictions and it's looking like we're on our way out in most parts of the country of having almost no restrictions. That tagline has gone away, but for about a year and a half, you really saw that in a lot of OMs. What was essential retail, what remained open during the pandemic, because again, in uncertain times, people didn't want to buy a location that may or may not be open, may or may not have you know 50% or 100% capacity in order to do business. So you saw a lot of investors shifting into retailers that one remained open or had drive-throughs or uh, other things that you know were always attractive, but now we're a whole lot more attractive. So do you see that shifting now that we've, I'll say this quietly, emerged from the pandemic, if we have so? I think we have. Now the biggest tagline I would say is e-commerce resistance always going to be one. What is a retailer that is resistant to e-commerce and all the changes going on in those sectors? And what's defensive? If the market starts to soften a little bit and we see a slight downturn what products are defensive that you know tend to do just as good in recessions as they do when things are great those are the two that people are focusing on now again essential retail was one that was definitely thrown around a lot during the pandemic I want to move on to the current state of the transactional market here. Courtney, you recently released an article titled Navigating a Seller's Market, Are Investors Devising New Formulas for Success? And I'd like you to give us the gist of that article and discuss in a little more detail what factors in the market today are making the current environment a perfect storm for sellers. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. So yeah, this this article I put together last year, a lot of it still holds pat to today with the market and what we're kind of experiencing. And a lot of it kind of has to snowball off of what Simon's already mentioned. Obviously the pandemic caused a lot of people to get very nervous. So for myself, I specialize predominantly in Rite Aid pharmacies. And as a tenant, historically, they're the slightly riskier of the three drugstore concepts that you can buy just because their market cap is a lot smaller. They don't have as many locations. They're credit rating is very weak. But to use as an example, our we actually sold a, a Rite Aid up in Sacramento for $10.2 million during the kind of midst of the pandemic. So I think that's a, kind of a good marker for how much demand there was surrounding the essential retailers. And so for all the drugstores, their sales went up. They became some of the only locations that were open, right? So grocery stores and drugstores were places that you could really go to for your essentials that you needed. So it really, the pandemic saved Rite Aid and, and made, for example, that listing that we had, you know, have over 11 offers within three days. So that was something very unique to kind of experience in terms of the Rite Aid market itself. Um, but I would say as a whole, you know, in terms of, of the market and kind of what led to this crazy cap rate compression that we experienced was just a lack of construction. There was a lack of inventory on the market 
a lot of the REITs weren't selling and, and normally they would, you know, traditionally they buy and sell and buy and sell, but they were holding on to most of their inventory because they too were like, hey, we got to balance, you know, all of our books and make sure our investors are happy. So they, they weren't selling as much as they normally were. There was a big shift out of multifamily just because of the government regulations and how, you know, landlords weren't getting money. So they were, you know, selling their assets and moving into something that was more stable, like a drugstore. And then on top of all of that, there was, you know, really low interest rates. And so the low interest rates contributed to people being able to afford more expensive properties because debt was so cheap. And so all of those kind of gave us this perfect seller's market where sellers were really able to capitalize in terms of pricing. And I saw that a lot, specifically with drugstores, but in particular with Rite Aid properties, just because historically they have such, you know, weak credit. So their cap rates are typically a lot higher. We closed on a couple of Rite Aids last year in Pennsylvania at 575 caps. So that was, you know, historical lows for the state. So it's kind wow. of an interesting time. That's that's fantastic. The uh, the $10 million price point Rite Aid you sold, that must have been a, close to a record as well. I haven't heard of a Rite Aid with that high of a price point. That's fantastic. Yeah, just kind of a comment on the market, right? We were able to achieve that pricing simply because there just wasn't a lot of inventory and there was a lot of demand. And so there was just so many investors that wanted to buy. They didn't even see it as a Rite Aid anymore. They just saw it as a as a drugstore that was going to pay them rent. And so because of that, we were able to kind of demand the lowest cap rate possible for our clients. So it was kind of a win-win. The buyer was happy because they knew that they were going to get a check every month. And the seller was happy because they sold at an all-time high. So it worked out. It's fantastic. I want to circle back on one point you made that is interesting. I don't think has been highlighted very much. When you mentioned the shift out of multifamily. So you're saying that was policy driven? Yep. We saw a lot of, especially in California, obviously it depends on what state you're in. But in terms of California, we saw a really large shift out of multifamily. So for example, the guys in our office that work in multifamily were getting calls, you know, how they, they're tenants haven't paid them rent in a year and they can't evict them because the government in the mayor of California said it's you know, illegal for you to evict someone during COVID. All the utility companies, they obviously couldn't shut off utilities, couldn't shut off water because people just couldn't pay their bills. And so for that reason, a lot of, we saw a major shift out of multifamily, at least in California. And a lot of those owners were actually looking to buy drugstores or buy grocery stores, but predominantly in the drugstore space, just because they knew that they would never, you know, get a, a phone call from CVS that they weren't going to pay their rent. And they saw that the drugstores were up during the pandemic, for example, like the Rite Aid properties. And they they decided, you know, I'd rather buy something at a at an all-time high and not have to worry about, you know, fighting people for rent than have to deal with the headache that they were currently experiencing with multifamily. And obviously that held Pat for a while. I think it was, you know, almost two years that they kind of had those policies in place, just as we kind of navigated the pandemic, there was so much uncertainty. And so we kind of saw that in terms of just the California market, specifically, just a, a major shift out of multifamily and more of that capital was invested into the triple net space. But a lot of it was invested into the essential business space within the triple net retail properties. One other area that I've heard that's been super popular, I'd love if you can expand on, is this sale leaseback space for the, the tenants that actually own their dirt. How how has that been 
evolving over the last couple of years and what really happens in one of those transactions? Yeah, so the sale leaseback space, it's kind of an interesting play for owners that are looking to expand at a pretty rapid pace. They're able to obviously roll off their real estate at an all-time high. For example, there's a guy in our office that does Zaxby's, and he works with a lot of the operators that also own the real estate. They're able to not only sell the operations, but they can also roll off and sell the real estate at a premium and then take that money and 1031 exchange into a new development site so they don't have any tax implications. I don't predominantly work in the sale leaseback space, but it's definitely a very unique way for owners that are kind of looking to grow their business. You see it a lot with like car washes, a lot with the quick service restaurants, those types of operations. I have a client of mine that actually operates grocery stores. So he himself, he wants to own the real estate for the depreciation aspect of it, but it's a really great way in order to, if you don't have the capital to just keep buying locations and operating them to be able to sell your real estate and have it operate pretty much as a, a triple net lease. And and those deals sell at pretty compressed cap rates. I mean, you see it with Taco Bell, for example, they'll have a, an operator create a new site for them. They'll develop a new location and they'll put a new 20 year triple net lease on it and roll it off at a four and a quarter cap if it's in a good market. So it's definitely a unique way that you can kind of extract all the money out of the property and exchange it into a new site and then build another site and kind of do the same thing over and over again until you kind of get to the expansion level that you're wanting. And I'll add one thing too, Matt, it's um, it's an interesting opportunity as well for a buyer because you are essentially buying the property from the operator and the lease hasn't been signed in many cases. So there's, there's some negotiations if there's clauses on the lease that you want or do not want included in a lease. If, you know, you want to, you know, increase rent, decrease rent, change rental increases. When a lease is signed and you're buying a property from an operator uh, that has already been there and it's not a brand new lease, you, you essentially have to assume that lease, right? But when you're buying a sale lease back, there's some negotiation in in purchasing and, and you know, drafting a lease to your liking with the operator that is doing the sale lease back. So it can, it can offer an interesting opportunity for a buyer to get the lease that they want in some cases. So it's talking about the compressed cap rates on a lot of those. That's a good reason why as well. If you're buying it directly from the operator, you can essentially negotiate the lease you want. That's a great point. I never really thought about that. You get that certain level of control and comfort with the operator, you know, before you, you're not just assuming someone else's bad lease, which is, can always be a dicey situation. All right, let's move on to uh, some kind of capital flows. So uh, our third topic of the podcast, where are investors moving capital? Gavin, a, another author on the podcast, uh, you recently wrote an article titled The Flight to Tax-Free States, uh, Investor Tax Advantages. Uh, why don't we dive into this one a little more? Um, what are the markets that are doing well? What ones are benefiting from the flight to the tax-free states and why? Yeah, appreciate you having me, Matt. Right now, really across the board, like you guys touched on, we're seeing a, a huge compression in cap rates, particularly in the, the nine states without a personal income tax. Um, and even more so, just for example, look at Matthews. We're the uh, fastest growing real estate company, and we just opened up two sites in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Florida, and the one in Nashville as well. So we're following that trend as well ourselves. And that's in large part because of the metrics. If you look at GDP growth, employment growth, in-state migration, those three metrics, the highest ones are found in the nine income tax-free states. Uh, that's for a good reason as well. And investors know that um, it's a huge tax-saving incentive. 
Um, and then also, it just gives you greater investment security. When you're looking at metrics like, for example, 109% greater population growth in those states, in the average for states without the income tax-free incentive, the past 10 years, that's really important to look at. Job growth at 130% greater. So those are critical to understand. We're looking at why the income tax-free states are seeing a boom in the real estate market. So we're seeing this kind of surge in population, which obviously that's always a a key metric that people look at when investing in real estate, the more people there, the, the more opportunities to grow and expand. That's a clear advantage. What, what are some of the other tax benefits that investors should kind of keep their eye on? I would say the cost segregation, depreciation, and opportunity zone investment, those two are very important as well. But the obvious one is always the 1031 exchange deferred capital gains. That's always the go-to. You know, you see those commercials that uh, 9 out of 10 doctors recommend this toothpaste, for example. That's kind of what we do as well. Nine out of 10 of the real estate advisors recommend the 1031 Exchange Deferred Capital Gains Program. You know, it's important to use that. There's no reason to pay extra taxes on your capital gains when instead you could defer that and roll it into your next asset and still collect residual income, hedge against inflation, and protect your investment overall. Can you go into this, the cost segregation depreciation? That's a that's a more niche type of tax advantage. Can you describe that for some of our listeners that might not have heard of that? Yeah, so it's commonly known as also as a 179 deduction, and it's a strategic planning tool, and it's used to assess the entity's real property and identify a portion of costs that can be treated as personal property. And by identifying personal property to be segregated from the building, a cost segregation study, or a CSS, can reassign costs that would depreciate over 39 years to asset groups that depreciate more quickly. So, for example, capital spent on non-structural improvements, that'd be carpet, lighting, HVAC units, landscaping, they can be, be depreciated over five, seven, or 15 years rather than stretching it out over 39 years. So this substantially shorter depreciational tax life, it frees up capital for other investment opportunities. Um, with that, if you combine that inside of a tax-free state, you're having double incentives, right? Additional savings overall, and you're preserving capital, and you're realizing immediate cash flow as well. So it really makes sense, and you're looking at overall, how do I save money when you're looking at what's my best investment, right? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you can have a huge impact in, in shielding some of uh, gains across your portfolio with some of these depreciation plays. That's, that's, that's very interesting. All right, moving on from, from taxes, our fourth topic here. What are the biggest takeaways? And you guys as a group, I'd like to kind of take turns as address this. What, what are the biggest takeaways that you want principals to consider when selling their investment? So I guess I can start this off. If you're looking to sell a single tenant net lease property, what I like to ask the investors is, is this a site that you're confident in over the next 10 years, right? Because in retail, unlike multifamily that we know is going to look and feel relatively the same over the next 10 years, retail is constantly changing. And it's always better to be proactive rather than reactive because oftentimes when the industry that you're in has changed or, you know, the lease terms up on, on one of your properties, it's, it's oftentimes too late. So really staying ahead of it and, and looking at the investment itself and saying, hey, is this an industry that I believe in over the next 10, 15 years? Is this a property that I believe in over the next 10, 15 years? If it is, then great. Let's confirm that it's that it's a good site. They're paying, you know, rents that are in tune with market. And truly, it is a, a good, stable tenant that, again, looking 10, 15 years down the road is still going to be there. 
And in this market as well, the, the second most important thing I would I would ask is, you know, do they have rental increases? Because a lot of these leases in the retail space, they don't have the same type of rent increases that a lot of, you know, the multifamily or in the industrial sites have. So looking at inflation and what's that's estimated to be over the next, you know, several years, rental increases are, are a lot more important now than they have been for a very long time. So if you're in a property that is in an industry that specialists and, and advisors like us may think will change over the next 10, 15 years, and it's a site that doesn't have rental increases to keep up with inflation, then oftentimes it's a site that maybe you should look into selling. And really it's just dependent on the type of investor that you are, right? The trade-offs that you're willing to trade off, are you willing to you know, hold a property throughout its lease term and, and negotiate with the tenant at the end of an option period? Or is it, or are you more of an investor that bought into net lease because of its passivity and just want to collect a check and not have to negotiate with the tenant? So really it's dependent on the investor itself, but looking down the road in this type of market, you want to be confident in the tenant and you want to have a lease term that can ride out whatever storm's coming and provide rental increases to edge against inflation. Those would be kind of the big points I would touch on if if it's a site you're thinking about selling. And to chime yeah. in, I think I'm going to hit the, the nail on the head there. You know, it depends on the the motivations of the investor. You know, what's important to them, uh, the lease term, the guarantor, the cash flow, what's important to them. More than anything else right now, what I'm seeing and personally is the rental increases, because uh, at this moment, you're looking at close to 8% for inflation. You need to have something to hedge against that. I mean, if you're going to have big increases as well, you want to have sales to, to report for your uh, for your site. So you know your tenant's doing healthy and you want to have the rent to sales ratio somewhere in, in you know, below a 10% usually. So your tenant's still making money in the green so they can, in fact, pay you rent and everyone's happy then. Yeah. And that, that rent to sales ratio is clearly going to be different for the type of tenant, the, you know, the, the grocery store kind of space, single tenant at least space, they're going to have to operate on a much tighter basis. They need to be in the 3% range, right? But the, uh, you know, some of the QSR space and more traditional single tenant at least guys, they can take up towards the double digits and still be making a profit. Courtney, any last uh, words before we wrap up on takeaways for investors here? Yeah, I I completely agree with everything that was already said. They both nailed it. Something too, you know, investors just they sometimes they just don't know what they don't know. And I say that in the sense that sometimes I call people and they don't fully understand the way that a net lease property operates. And so they're just used to getting called a bunch on it. And sometimes it's important for them to understand the implications of like a lot loss of equity as the lease term burns off. There's different things that they're just not even aware of. They think and assume it's a piece of real estate. It'll appreciate like my home. I get told that all the time. And so it's really getting them to understand how we value net lease properties specifically. It's different from other types of commercial real estate that you can buy. So I, I think it's really important just to help them see the numbers in front of them and, and kind of see it aligns with their overall goals. And, and just like Simon mentioned, 10 years, is it something that you want to own for the next 10 years? And for the most part, after you kind of show them the, the numbers and the loss of equity in terms of the lease, I think it's really important to kind of consider selling if you can, you know, in a good market. So I definitely think they both nailed it in terms of investor goals and just overall achievement of what you're trying to get out of buying the commercial real estate in the first place and why you originally bought it and kind of how it aligns with your your financial goals. And if you rely on the income, all those types of good things that are important to know. 
Great. And before we wrap up, we're going to do a quick prediction for, for 2022 versus 2021. We'll go right down the line. Go Simon, Gavin, Courtney. Where do you think cap rates are going to be at the end of 22? And where do you think volume is going to be overall first 21, December 31st of this year? Go. So I think cap rates soften a little bit. I can't imagine that they continue to stay as low as they are just with increasing interest rates. You know, the Fed's already come out and said that we're going up 25 basis points here soon. And, you know, they're estimating two to three more hikes at least this year of about the same anywhere between 25 to 50 basis points. So, you know, if investors are used to buying properties on a, you know, 100 basis point or 150 basis point spread between cap rate and interest rate, it's going to be difficult to continue to buy them as at low cap rates as we've been. So, I think cap rates soften. I think, you know, the end of this year, are we 50 basis points higher than where we're at? I don't know, because obviously there's a lag between interest rates and cap rates based on where they sell. But I definitely think there's going to be a softening of, of cap rates. I don't see them continuing to stay as low as they are. As far as volume goes, I mean, it's We'll, we'll wait and see what happens. Again, I, I think we're still in relatively uncertain times just with everything that's going on in, in the globe right now. But I'd have to imagine in uncertain times, that's what hurts the market the most. Even if there's certainty and we know it's not as good as it was in 2021, but at least we're certain, I see volume ticking back up right now. And, and you know, through 2021, it's been relatively low volume due to uncertainty. So I think uh, if that changes, volume should go up. Gavin, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think Simon is right on point there. The federal, the Fed announcing the interest rates should be going up. Cap rates should be following slowly behind. But right now, it's, it is a market with low inventory. We're seeing that, for example, a Wendy's property we just brought out to market in Alabama and Tuscaloosa. We achieved a cap rate record at 4.15% cap rate. That's really just unheard of. And ideally, moving forward, that should be a higher cap rate, right? Deals should be a little bit higher, a little bit sweeter for investors. And we're hoping that with interest rates rising, that should be a good correlation. With volume, it can't get much more scarce. It really comes down, like Simon said, certainty. If investors feel more confident in the market and have more confidence overall, we should have an increase in there as well. Great. Courtney? Yep, I, I completely agree with both of what they said. Just from the conversations I've had with other developers and national tenants, they plan to start their development back up. But of course, right now, the market's still holding firm, low inventory, low cap rates. So uh, I would imagine definitely if we talk again in a year, the cap rates will be a little bit higher and, and a lot more inventory on the market. All right. Thank you all for joining us today and, and sharing your insights. These are obviously really important topics that we deal with here. Uh, we appreciate your time. I know you guys are busy and thank you again. Take care and be sure to tune in next time.